Hello and welcome to episode 55 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis, and joining me today is Professor David Goodman, Professor Emeritus of Chinese Politics at the University of Sydney. We'll be asking David to help us understand the true role played by the Communist Party of China in Chinese society, past and present. David Goodman, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm looking forward to hearing about the true role you know, being, uh, being an academic, um, I'm very wary of anything that describes itself as true in inverted commas and flashing me on science. Describe itself, it described you. So you tell us, uh, look, just to give us some broad orientation, with more than 90 million members, can we put our finger on it? What is the Communist Party of China? Well, it's, it's a number of things. I suppose the most important thing is it's the source of political authority in China, no question about it. Uh, and it uh, determines governance, it determines governance, it uh, has a huge bureaucracy which spreads out throughout um, uh, every uh, part of um, the political system, the social system, and indeed the economic system. So, uh, and, and to the extent that the party from the top controls anything, it does it through those bureaucracies, those hierarchies with officials and party committees. Now that's a very simple introduction, but the party also has a, a couple of other fairly obvious roles in the kind of party state that China is. It's also very much a social animal. So um, if you're a young person of talent, a young person who wants to have a career, not necessarily in public service, but just wants to get ahead and, and beyond and ahead, you will join the Communist Party. It's, it's a social thing. It's a social entity. And it has very deep social roots uh, because it's been there for a long time, particularly in some parts of China. It has deep social roots going back even to before 1949. And as you can imagine, and as we may elaborate later, um, that influences who the dominant class are and who the middle class people are and, and how they get jobs and what they do, as well as, of course, um, its prime role, which is looking after officialdom and the politics of the system. The party is also, of course, um, sorry? Uh, no, please, please. Now I've forgotten what I was, I was going to say. It doesn't matter. You ask, you go. <laughs> In that case, I, I want to get back to that issue about the social aspects of the party, but let, let yes. me just ask first about the bureaucratic side. I, I, I'm used to thinking of a government as bureaucratic, and we all have this idea in mind of a uh, you know, Chinese bureaucracy, but there's also a party bureaucracy. How does that work? Well, it works very easily. So the notion of a party state is inherited from, basically from the Soviet Union way back when there was a Soviet Union. Some of you may be old enough to remember when it existed. But a communist party state works like this. There is a, a government organization, which we would recognize here. For example, you know, federal government, um, uh, uh, state governments, local councils, all that stuff. Um, but in China, alongside the governmental hierarchy, there is a party hierarchy. And the party hierarchy, in theory, um, looks after policy and appointments of leaders in the government sector. Now, the problem, of course, with the party state is not always, but almost always, 
there is a tendency for the party to get involved in the, uh, in, in the business of the government. Oh, I should perhaps explain that the reason for this theoretical divide is that the party which is the representative of the people, um, we can go into that, how that works if you like, but the party which is the representative of the people uh, makes policy. Policy is then implemented by government. It's a kind of, you know, it's a bit like having a, uh, uh, um, standing out in the rain, but making sure you have an umbrella up in case any rain falls. So it doesn't fall. It's a, it's a shield. Now, who are, I mentioned Communist Party of China's 90 million members. That's, you know, 10% of the adult population. Uh, who are these people? Who joins them? It's up there. Parents are uh, leading uh, officials and so on. Uh, they join to get on ahead. And there's no question about it. And if they want a career in public service, which is still very valued, then they join the party too. Um, please don't think that just because China has a large economy with um, uh, fantastic growth rates, that the wealth in China is like the wealth here. GDP per capita in China is very low. It's only about the same as the world average for GDP per capita. Whereas, you know, we're, we're in Australia, we're way up almost the same level as, or close to the level by comparison of the United States. Um, so if you want to get ahead, many families will say they want their children to get ahead. Oh, you should have a job in public service. And there's huge differences, of course, between rural and urban China. Now, I won't get it. Let me stay with the story about the party uh, and its role in society, because um, in the past, that's to say in the revolutionary era of the People's Republic of China between 1949 and 1978, the co social composition of the party was much more what we might recognize as ordinary people, workers, peasants, soldiers, and the like. Now the percentage of rural dwellers in the party is much less, the percentage of middle-class people is much higher. And when we talk about middle-class people in China, we shouldn't think that they're necessarily uh, people, uh, in fact, we should almost necessarily think they're not people who come from private enterprise or are in some way separate from the party state. Um, the party state has its fingers into most things, most things economic, most things educational, health, welfare, and the like. And those are the people, the middle classes, the professional middle classes in particular, but also the entrepreneurial middle classes. They are the people who uh, are now the largest section, section in, alongside the cadres and the officials in the party membership. Me young, people, young people at university will be encouraged to join. But remember, who goes to university in China? About 25% of the school leaving population. Again, not the same as Australia or uh, other, more, other parts of Europe or North America or England or whatever. Some of our uh, viewers, uh, Anthony, Winton, Peter, uh, thank you for joining us today. Anyone else who's out there who'd like to uh, get a call out, please uh, put your name in the comments. Also, please start getting your questions for David, and we will have time for viewer questions if there's anything you'd like to ask uh, Professor David Goodman today. Uh, David, you, know, you and I both are social scientists. Um, you mentioned the middle class. Now, classically, for me, the middle class means professionals, uh, you know, doctors, teachers, lawyers, uh, accountants. Um, to what extent is the Communist Party today, or even in the past, 
a party of the professional class. Are these classic middle class professionals who well, make up the bulk of the Communist Party? Um, so there are really in China, um, China is not, despite its um, practices in many regards, its practices of capital, capitalism, it's not a capitalist society. It's not run for the benefits, benefit of capitalists or capitalist procedures or any of that stuff. It's a, it's a, 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 a what, what is described by China itself as a market socialist economy, which you might also regard as a form of capitalism, but uh, state capitalism, although state, the state, you know, the, the, the theory of state capitalism has different, a different trajectory. About 25% of the economy is still run by state-owned enterprises. Or when I say 25% of the economy, 20% of the value produced by the economy is from, from state-owned enterprises. But it's not as productive as the non-state sector. But even the non-state sector is not really non-state. Substantial proportions of the non-state economy are actually part of local government, uh, which you might also regard in some ways uh, as a state economy. Why am I telling um, uh, uh, if, if, if we follow Giddens in accepting those dominant classes and middle classes and subordinate classes, well, the dominant class and the subordinate class in the case of China are fairly easy to identify. The subordinate classes are the workers and peasants uh, who have, as Giddens would say, uh, a class position by virtue of their manual labor. The dominant class are those who control or own, but not necessarily, but may also control the means of production. Now that might be, and we'll come back to that in a minute, it might be the owners of capital, but it's more likely to be in a Communist Party state, regardless of the degree of market socialism. Um, it's also likely to be, it's more likely to be uh, officials and cadres and people who manage state-owned enterprises and determine the way the economy works. Uh, and um, basically that's the dominant class. So who does that leave as the middle classes? Well, in, in uh, the Giddens definition of the middle class, it's the people who uh, have their class position by virtue of their knowledge, their skills, and their experience. In China, a goodly proportion of those people are um, uh, not just educated, but are actually part of the party state system. That's how they got educated, that's how they have their positions, they run things, they manage things, all under to a, 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 either a, a, or usually, a lesser or usually a greater extent uh, the direction of the party and the party committee at various levels. Now, the, the mystery in all this, and I would define them as a professional, the middle class as a professional middle class, as you say, an entrepreneurial middle class, and um, uh, a managerial middle class. The managerial, you'll understand, is necessary because of the nature of the management of society by a Communist Party state. That's fine. Why would one include entrepreneurs in the middle class and not in the dominant class? It's a, a, um, a discussion I've had with colleagues in China very often, uh, particularly at uh, China's Academy of Social Sciences. Um, uh, and I think they've convinced me, I mean, not recently, about 10 years ago, uh, a number of people there convinced me that actually you sh shouldn't talk about entrepreneurs, however wealthy and however influential you think they are as being part of the dominant class. Because this is not 
a polity, a political economy that's run for capitalists. They are subservient to the party. They are subservient, as the party would see it, to the will of the people, or at least the will of the proletariat and the state. And so they are part of. Now, there's another fairly simple reason for taking entrepreneurs as part of the middle class, and that is that most entrepreneurs, despite the fame that some of them get, like uh, Jack Maher and so on, uh, the vast majority of um, uh, entrepreneurs in uh, China are not particularly wealthy. Uh, uh, there are some at local level, at provincial level, who are fairly well off, yes, but there would be about maybe 11 million entrepreneurs. Uh, that category in China includes people who sell uh, brushes on the street because they're self-employed business people. So it's a very, very wide, uh, very wide category. And unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately from the point of view of the party state, the National Bureau of Statistics, which gives us data on these things, is a bit weak on distinguishing all those different categories. You, you mentioned Jack Ma, and Jack Ma, of course, the founder of Alibaba, and he uh, had trouble with uh, the, the, well, trouble with uh, his uh, floating of anti-financial and the, the issue over his criticisms of financial regulation in China. He was disappeared from public view for several months. Uh, are people like Jack Ma and Pony Ma, the founder of Tencent, do they really not have substantial power in China? Are, are they very much under the thumb of the party? No, I don't think they're under the thumb, but it's an accommodation between the two sides and they work together. And of course, Jack Ma, once he uh, decided to stand down and float, uh, float his company and so on, then declared that he was a member of the Chinese Communist Party. Nobody's ever found out when he actually joined. Um, it's possible he only joined after he stepped down, but somehow one suspects that is not the case. Um, very, very wealthy business people get wheeled out at uh, National People's Congresses, which is the equivalent of, uh, well, kind of the equivalent of uh, uh, the, par the, par the parliament uh, in a de liberal democracy. Um, they get wheeled out, they come, they're part of the uh, uh, in attendance, uh, they're members often, they're representatives to parliament in one of its different uh, manifestations, various manifestations. And so they participate uh, in that sense in the political process. But at the end of the day, um, uh, every business person knows that if the chips are down, they don't have the say of things. Let me give you an example. There is labor shortage. I mean, this is not about Jack, Jack Ma, this is about other things, but it's the same principle, you'll understand. Um, there's labor shortages, particularly in East and South China, where light industry has been going uh, guns, great guns for the last few decades. There's, a lot of workers have come in from the interior of China, but there's still a labor shortage. So you, you are a factory owner in one of the East Coast provinces. Uh, you haven't got enough people. What do you do? You go to a neighboring factory and you talk to the person who's responsible for the recruitment of the labor force there and you say, bring these guys over. We can do, you know, we'll pay them more for doing the same kind of job. Uh, remember that um, a large part of light industry in China is, um, uh, the production of things is very concentrated. So you tend to have textiles together, uh, carbon production together, all kinds of things, you know. 
So you go to a nearby factory and say, bring your workforce over, we'll pay them more. So the ganga brings his people over and then you don't pay them. What then happens? Well, there's a strike or there's a bit of aggro or there's something like that. And what then happens? The local party secretary comes and sees the factory and says, I hear you made a promise you're not keeping. Now I'm afraid that's not going to happen on my watch. And of course, it's not going to happen on his watch because one of, you know, they get assessed at Kerkadas, local officials get assessed every year. And they get a, a, assessed not just for pure economic growth, but for social stability, for environmental sustainability. There's a whole checklist of things. So if this guy knows there's going to be a riot or fears there's going to be a riot on his patch because of some factory owner, he goes and tells him, no, you're going to pay because of this. And the factory owner has no choice. So I, I, I want to draw an interesting or interesting to me distinction there, because uh, we have a question from Anthony, uh, who is citing the Harvard Kennedy School uh, survey data on China, showing that Chinese people seem to be satisfied with the performance of the central government, but report very low levels of satisfaction. That's completely correct. With and that of, course, that, of course, is always the way in an authoritarian political system. You will remember... Uh, or maybe you won't remember, but because neither of us is this old. But during the famines in the Soviet Union, people used to write to Stalin and say the, the local, you know, people would write and say the local cadres here are keeping the grain from us. Please, comrade Stalin, help us. In the Great Leap Forward in China, people wrote to Mao and said this local or this provincial official is no good. Chairman Mao, you have our best interests at heart. You must get rid of this person. Um, all that stuff, all those documents came out in the Cultural Revolution when uh, the Maoists turned on uh, uh, the established party leaders from the 50s and 60s. They brought out of the files all this stuff. So it's, it's common knowledge that these letters were written, these things were said. Nothing changed. That so doesn't mean, of course, that doesn't mean, of course, that the party is not popular. Um, uh, well, that's what I wanted to ask. Have, you. Is, is, it, is it the party? Do people distinguish between that party cadre who is solving their local problem and the local government, which maybe is not listening to them? Or do people simply conflate local party and local government as being It's the very varied. Most of the time it's conflation, but it's not always like that. Um, if you're working in a university, it's very clear who's government and who's party. I mean, in your case, uh, as I found when I was working there for the last decade. Um, it's, it's, uh, but in general terms, um, it's hard to distinguish. For most people, I think they don't think in those terms. They think into, you know, they don't talk about the party state. We do as analysts. Uh, so but that's basically what they're talking about. So if local cadres are solving people's problems at you know, not getting paid, why are they so unpopular with local people? Oh, well, I mean, that's not what that survey showed. What that survey showed was that the national cadres were more popular. There's a, there's a degree of distrust with people who you live with. That's basically what it is. Christopher's asking us, how serious is the Communist Party leadership today about their adherence to Marxist and Leninism? 
And maybe if you want to unpack Marxism versus Leninism in that answer, what are your thoughts on the party's ideological commitment? Well, I have a very good friend who is um, who works at Sydney, actually, and we argue about uh, the nature of Marxism all the time. Um, he claims that if you're analyzing China, you have to accept the party's uh, definition of definitions and theories within Marxism. And he has a point. Uh, I object to that because when you're right, I just think when you're writing about it, you need to be able to say, well, that's their Marxism and this is other people because it's gone a long way. Marxism as a set of ideas has gone a long way since almost uh, 150 years ago. Um, Marxism-Leninism is a term that's been used to um, describe Communist Party, the, the, the practices and procedures of Communist Party states. Um, China itself has, um, the PRC that is, the Communist Party of China, have at times made distinctions between themselves and, this, and uh, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Um, I'm not sure that that's worth going into very much. Um, if you think that Marxism is about the freeing of the human spirit, and there are people who think that, and that that should come before everything else, then you would say, then you would definitely say that the Chinese Communist Party is not Chinese, uh, is not Marxist rather, uh, because um, uh, uh, what they care about is um, uh, economic growth, nationalism, state nationalism, uh, and keeping control of the political system. Now, um, if you're if you're the kind of if you're the kind of Marxist that Trotsky was, you would object very strongly to probably all three of those things, uh, certainly to two of them, uh, namely nationalism and control under all costs. It's very interesting. Deng Xiaoping in the early 1940s actually said, and it's well known, it's well documented, that communist parties, when they compete in elections, don't necessarily have to be in control don't necessarily want to be they want to hear the voice of the people now when he said it they were mobilizing people in north china uh, during the war against war of resistance against japan and uh, um, it was before the establishment of the people's republic of china but you know if the if the communist party of china wishes to have um, a history to lean back on for competitive elections in it only has to go to um, things that he said at that time, and other people too, to find uh, a legacy to lean on. Chris wants to ask about the uh, top talent in the public bureaucracy in China. Uh, he points out that the, the role of the scholar official was historically very important in China, and he's wondering if the party plays some kind of similar role to the old mandarinate of uh, imperial China. Well, I mean, on a very superficial level, you might say yes, but my answer, my real answer to that question would be to say, this is a different kind of state 
to the imperial dynastic state, the ability to stop famine as much as it could, uh, and so on, to stop invasion, and so on and so forth. This is, this is a Communist Party state. It's trying, at, at its heart, it's trying to win the battle against nature and even uh, to some extent against human nature. It's trying to make what it sees as a better society in, in very specific ways. So it's not really like the Mandarin. Now, having said that, what fascinates me from the sociological point of view is the extent to which people who are now in the dominant class and have their social status derived from party leadership and so on, a goodly proportion of them, and indeed a goodly proportion of entrepreneurs, come from the old pre-1949 uh, and even longer ruling class. Local elites who uh, were, exactly as Chris has said, the, from the scholar gentry. People who owned land, who had a son, who was educated in order to uh, join in the service of the imperial court, uh, and so on and so forth. I did a survey uh, about, uh, finished about nine years ago, started about 14 years ago. Um, I did a survey of literally 500, uh, up to 500, about 475, uh, very rich people in five different locations. 82% of them had at least one grandparent who before 1949 were part of the old scholar gentry ruling elite. Staggering, eh? It is staggering, and I think uh, in a way it shows that Mao was right when he said the revolution was not complete. Uh, whatever we may think of, of the revolution, uh, certainly your own work seems... I could not agree with you more. Whatever we think of the revolution, right. he was right about that. And in a sense, that question about Marxism, much more interesting to ask is whether Mao's interpretation of Marxism and, and, and what happened up until his death has been reversed or not. That's a much more interesting question. Yeah. I, think, I think, to be honest, I think, to be honest, uh, you know, although it would be unpopular to say so in Beijing, I think there's some evidence that needs to be uh, answered with respect to that. Uh, I mentioned before that workers and peasants used to be uh, a larger proportion of the party membership than is the case now. Um, it's certainly the case that um, the ruling, the contemporary dominant class has its roots in both a kind of new class that was created in the 50s and 60s and the old dominant local elite. Now, having said that, not, I'm not going back on what I'm talking about workers and peasants, but the, the fact of the matter was that even in 1949, the, the rulers of China who had come out of the revolutionary movement, more than a quarter of them, almost a third, had backgrounds in the old local elite ruling class. It could not have been otherwise, really, when you think about it. Revolutionary movements are often like that. The question is not about your social background, but about your social ideas. And what I think the party would say now is that, uh, on the one hand, historical conditions change, which they do, and the other, well, we are serving the interests of everybody by doing what we do.
Unfortunately, we have to wrap up very soon. Uh, I do want to say a quick hello to Elizabeth, to Chris, uh, to Michael. Michael did have a quick question about the status of the Catholic Church in China. Can you tell us at all about the status of the Catholic Church or other Christian churches in China today? Well, I'm not a great authority on Christianity, save for one thing. I spent a large part of my time in China, not recently, but in the in distant past, in Shanxi province. Shanxi province has no uh, uh, non-ethnic Han Chinese, and not the Han, well, whatever, non-ethnic Chinese. But it does have about 5 million Catholics, rural Catholics, out of uh, about 35 million. How does that happen? Because in the, starting in the 17th century, uh, Jesuit missionaries and Dominican missionaries and various other people came to this province, which is about 800 kilometers from uh, uh, five to eight hundred kilometers from Beijing, and they they brought Catholicism with them, and they 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 did it in the usual way of taking you know winning over uh, rural landlords and setting themselves up in villages. So if you go to the southeast of that province, um, uh, you find an awful lot of churches and a lot of Catholics. Now the question, of course, is the real question is is it Roman Catholic? Well, it's not. Um, it has a Roman Catholic tradition. But it is now the, 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 the state has determined that you can be a Catholic, but you have to be part of the national Catholic Church. They have, as uh, Chris probably, was it Chris who answered the question? I can't remember. Uh, Michael. Well, My, Michael probably knows that uh, in recent years there have been uh, movements towards accommodation between Rome and Beijing right. over Catholic bishops and the like. Um, the, the, the essential problem for the Catholic Church in this context is that Rome appoints bishops, uh, but Beijing says it can't. So, but people believe, and it become you know it becomes in some areas of the country it can be uh, like Shanxi, it can be uh, quite fundamentally important. Apologize to you and to everyone watching for running over time, but there is one final question I absolutely have to ask you, and that is. Has Australia really, quote, hurt the feelings of the Chinese people? Well, I don't know who Australia is, and I'm not sure I know who the <laughs> to be perfectly honest. I mean, this is, at the moment, this is a war of words. Okay. Um, what I do know is that many of my friends, I got back from China in March, late March. Uh, what I do know is that since I got back, many of my friends have got in touch with me and said, we hear that the China, uh, Australian economy is going is crumbling. Are you okay? <laughs> so I have to try. I have to try and reassure. Well, let's reassure everyone that uh, things are really not moving towards the kinds of conflict we hear advertised in the press. I think we have a a, a, a much more promising future for, for Australia and China than either country would like to admit right now. Right now, yes, I think that's probably my hope. Right. David thank Goodman, Salvatore. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Let me also thank uh, Nico Malian, our producer, our executive producer, Max Hawk Weaver. The director of CIS is Tom Switzer. Next week, we'll be talking to Professor Bob Graham of the Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute about spiders and stroke. And no, it's not about how you have a stroke if you see the spider. Uh, you'll be amazed how spiders are actually going to be saving us from stroke in the future. Thanks everyone for watching and we look forward to you seeing us here on On Liberty next week.